Hi everyone, it's Caleb, and I am so honored that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And I am so grateful to be joined by my guest today, Chris Batali, to talk with him about his brand new book called How to Win the War on Truth, How Mistruths Are Sold, Why They Stick, and How to Reclaim Reality. And today, if this happens to be your first time joining us, I do want to tell you about a couple of things. The first thing is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations like that one that we're going to engage in today. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. We can learn from anything and from everything, whether it's something serious or something trivial. And we do it because we want to be the person who was there for us, or maybe the person that we wish was there for us. Now, if you've been listening for a while or whether or not this is your first episode, one of the best ways that you can keep up with us is by subscribing or keeping up with the Learner's Corner and with me and all of that stuff is by subscribing to my newsletter to where I give you all of the best things that have come out over, uh, really just over the past few weeks and just really some of the things that I'm most interested in learning about and some of the things that have captured my curiosity and my imagination. Now, this book, one of the things that I love about this book is that there's a lot of illustrations to go with it as well. And so it just, it really helped me engage with reading this. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Chris and then we are going to read, or I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him and then we're going to jump into the conversation. So Chris Batali is a media studies expert who has written for Huffington Post as well as Geek Magazine and advocate.com previously he worked at lucasfilm in global product development as well and he is the author of star wars collecting a galaxy and also of the book as i mentioned earlier how to win the war on truth and without any further wait here is our conversation Well, Chris, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the places that I love to begin conversations is, especially around like whenever someone has created like a work of art or written a book and everything, is I love hearing the story behind it. And so you've written this book, How to Win the War on Truth. And I would just love to ask you, when did you begin thinking about some of these ideas in How to Win the War on Truth? Yeah, so I feel like uh, a lot um, came out of 2016, um, you know, uh, the idea for the book, but not necessarily knowing if it was a book or what it was. Um, but it came out of so many conversations I was having with friends and family um, around the election cycle. You know, there was just so much misinformation, uh, which to me was pretty obvious. But the more I talked to people back home uh, in Louisiana, where I'm from, uh, the more I realized just how many belief stuff that simply wasn't true, you know, verifiably untrue. Um, so I became obsessed with how to penetrate those barriers of belief. Uh, you know, how do we help people see the bigger picture? Um, how far back do we have to step for people to see how some of our most deeply held beliefs have been manufactured and sold to us like any other consumer good? Um, and so these were ideas I was thinking about for a while, um, and I was very passionate about inequality and socioeconomics and some of these other things. Um, and so they kind of just all came together. Um, uh, cause you know, uh, 
us buying into these beliefs explain so much of why we're struggling with certain things in this country the way we are. Um, you know, so I decided that the answer was equal parts like a crash course in media literacy, uh, part psychology lesson, and then part understanding the forces of power who benefit from us believing all the misinformation. And taking all together, you know, I think they serve as a lesson in critical thinking. Mm. So yeah, definitely. And the the book is very insightful in going through it and everything. And one of the one of the curious things that I would love to hear about is that it's it's written in a little bit different format than a book because there's so many illustrations through it as well. I I would just love to hear and maybe even talk about um, uh, Alan as well, who did the illustrations. Talk about what made you want to go down that path before we dive into a lot of the content of the book. Sure. So, you know, I always kind of imagined it uh, as illustrated because I feel like uh, there was a visual learning tool that was important um, in the book. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar, there's a book called Economics with an X mm-hmm. by Michael Goodwin. And it's like a graphic novelization of the history of economics, mm-hmm. you know, from the past to the present and um and it's just a brilliant book and it has a great like sense of humor and whimsy with the illustrations and so i kind of thought that would be a good template for what i had in mind um i knew there needed to be a graphic component because of uh all the tables and the data and um and you know a lot of learning tools and so yeah when i got a publisher on board and an agent on board they both thought that was the best way to go um, to make it more accessible, uh, you know, to the brightest, to the broadest possible audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh yeah. And so, you know, there was also this trend lately where they've been taking these, uh, I guess, more academic or scholarly nonfiction books and turning them into graphic novels, like, you know, Sapiens and yeah. On Tyranny and a lot of these things. And so I think on the publisher and agent side, they kind of thought, well, let's skip the middle step. Yeah. and just go to the graphic guide. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that was kind of how we ended up on it. And Alan actually came about um, a mutual friend um, introduced us and the publisher ended up, you know, liking his art and uh, and he was able miraculously to do, you know, hundreds of pages of illustrations in less than a year. Um, it was a pretty advanced um, approval process. And so, and it came out great. Like I, I love the sense of humor of the illustrations, you know, they're, um, they're just a lot of fun. And I think they bring a nice dose of whimsy to what could otherwise be kind of, you know, academic or dry material. So, yeah. Uh, one probably, I don't know. I don't know if this is the biggest idea in the book or maybe the biggest takeaway for me, but one of them is about propaganda and you talk about that so much. And so I think that might be a good way for us to start talking about this of start with what is propaganda and how does it play out in this conversation of misinformation and finding out what the truth is? Sure. I mean, that's really the, you know, the subject of the book. Um, It's the spine kind of, um, you know, we, the lesson is recognizing propaganda so that we can understand all of these other things, you know, socioeconomics and inequality and our belief systems and um, and a lot of the problems we struggle with in this country are because we, you know, have been sold ideas about how the world works that aren't necessarily accurate. Um, 
and so, yeah, so propaganda is basically any information that's biased or misleading. You know, in short, propaganda tries to sell us something, whether it's a consumer product or some type of commodified belief. You know, the word comes from the church. It literally means spreading the faith. And that's the problem with propaganda. It sells us ideas that someone wants us to take on faith that are usually bullshit. Um, so whether it's a snake oil, homeopathic remedy, or the belief that global warming is a hoax, you know, someone with power benefits by us buying those beliefs. Um, and so propaganda almost always comes from the powerful. Um, you know, back in the day, it was the church. Then it was the monarchy. Then it was, you know, corporations. And it's, you know, it comes from, uh, yeah, power structures who are basically trying to sell us something. So what makes propaganda so effective? Um, well, let's see. There are so many things. Um, we, we got plenty of time. We can get into as much yeah, as you want. See. You know, well, so yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, which, uh, which direction to go in. Um, maybe the answer, how is it achieved? Or the question yeah. about how it was achieved. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess so propaganda usually focuses on a simple slogan or a black and white narrative with all the complexity cut out. Mm -hmm. um, like say, you know, immigrants commit more crime, you know, that's taking a very complex topic and drilling it down into something oversimplified that is not accurate or representative of the larger conversation. And so that slogan um, appeals to our hidden biases, like stranger danger or fear of the outsider, um, you know, these deep rooted um, biases that we have often without even recognizing it. And those biases are usually used to divide us into in-groups and out-groups. You know, so an in-group is someone who shares my nationality or gender or sex or religion or political party or whatever. And then an out-group is someone who does not share my nationality, gender, sex, religion. Um, so, you know, the out-groups can be pretty diverse. So if we're Catholic, for instance, then we more readily identify with Catholics. Um, and then we can tend to lump every other religion into another, you know, whether it's j Muslims and jihadists or whether it's, um, you know, Presbyterians and other denominations of Christianity or something like it's it's all an other. And mm -hmm. so the danger with that is that, um, you know, that other can be easily scapegoated or demonized because there are people who aren't like us. So, you know, there's nothing more easy in the world than to hate somebody who's different. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the foundation for every war ever fought. Um, and so the more we buy into these labels or divisions or propaganda that, you know, seek to divide us, then the easier we are um, to be manipulated for political gain or corporate gain or whatever. Um, so, for instance, you know, with the, uh, the immigrant example, mm -hmm. if we're natural born citizens, it's very easy to dismiss immigrants as dangerous or having some type of nefarious or suspicious intent. Um, you know, we don't identify with the immigrant because they are, um, you know, they are cast or framed as like some dangerous outsider um, who are, you know, invading our territory or something like that. Um, we don't stop to consider under what conditions we would be an immigrant. <laughs> like instead of thinking, of these people as some other 
um, that we can't understand. We can't understand. All we have to think is what would make us immigrant from the U.S. to Canada? You know, would we do it for persecution, death threats, a better life? Um, you know, none of us are going to immigrate to go sm smuggle drugs or commit crime. I mean, we could do those things here. So, uh, but by changing our perspective and having empathy or identifying with that out group, then we can cut through the propaganda and realize that those people aren't perpetrators, but usually victims of something. And so if we want to be decent human beings, and then we would either try to help eliminate those dangers, whether it's crippling the drug cartels or trying to fight climate change and global warming so we're not forcing people to be refugees, um, or we provide them assistance. You know, either we welcome them in and we help them with a better life, or we try to um, change circumstances that are making them seek a better life. Um, so the immigration debate is historically, by and large, usually nothing but thinly veiled racism, um, because it's very rarely a discussion about how do we deal with this. Instead, it's usually someone trying to stoke fear or hate an outgroup in order to get you to the voting booth mm. or keep our home pure and white. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you look at uh, like the last campaign season, you know, if someone is using fear mongering, if they're talking about building a border wall or um, how we need to stop immigration or anything that's evoking, you know, kind of a negative uh, emotion, they're usually just using it for political points um, as opposed to solutions that would look like, again, addressing climate change, um, anything that tackles the conditions that are creating the immigration. And very few people um, are doing that. It's just easier and kind of more expedient to um, cash in on it politically on, on the problem as opposed to proposing a real solution. And, you know, for anybody listening, the border wall, I say that because a border wall does not stop illegal immigration. Mm -hmm. Historically, it has the opposite effect um, because so many of our immigrants uh, that come from the southern border, they usually come for uh, day labor work and they go back and forth. They come to the U.S. for work, picking crops or what have you, and then they go back um, to support their families. And so what happens is if you build a wall, then people stop going back. They just stay here. Um, and most of the people don't come in through the border. You know, they come on visas and they come on planes and they they arrive here by legitimate means. You know, the vast majority they're not trying to sneak in at the southern border. But that gets all of the attention because, you know, it's like a hot button issue that um, people with power can use um, kind of as a, you know, a weapon. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that gets so much of our attention. Mm. Yeah, it even makes me think of, and, and you do talk about this in the book, some is like, immigration is a complex issue. And like, there's a lot of these things that it's not as, just as you were saying, it's not black and white. It takes time for us to think and yeah. to engage and to learn and all of that stuff. And yeah, well, and you know, we think of immigration, like what we've been talking about just now, like those examples. But the truth is, is that when we have better immigration policies, we attract these leading um, thinkers and scientists who we're going to solve tomorrow's problems, you know, like a huge percentage of our um, um, Nobel laureates and um, and 
you know, acclaimed scientists are immigrants. You know, a lot of the founders of uh, a lot of our tech companies are either immigrants themselves or the children of immigrants. Um, and so we need to stop thinking of, oh, we need to crack down on immigration so people don't come from the border, you know, can't cross the border. Um, and think of how if we limit immigration, then that means we're getting fewer of the world's top scientists and, you know, thinkers. Um, we're limiting them. We're keeping them from coming over to go to college or Harvard or Yale. We're um, not allowing our top uh, biotech companies to hire these people. Um, and so, you know, we want the thing with open borders is, yeah, we, you know, you need these smart people to come help us save the planet and save the world. Mm -hmm. And we don't want someone else to discover the cure for cancer. We want to do that here. <laughs> um, and so the tougher we make it, then the more, um, you know, those brains are going to go elsewhere and mm. contribute to someone else's economy and future. Mm -hmm. When you are trying to figure out if something is propaganda or not, what what are some of the things you mentioned the the negative emotion, which looking for that, what are some of the other things that you look for that help communicate to you? Like, yeah, this is propaganda that I'm being sold. Yeah, I'd say uh, recognizing the emotional value behind a media message usually reveals its true intent. So, you know, Adolf Hitler said, I use emotion for the many and reason for the few. So when a media message appeals to our emotions instead of our intellect, um, it's usually a sign we're being manipulated. Um, you know, so how do we know if we're being emotionally manipulated? Often it's when the negative when the negative emotions are triggered. So think of political attack ads. You know, there's a reason that most countries across the globe don't allow them uh, because they work. Um, but they work because they're manipulative and stirring up hate, outrage, or disgust. Um, and so these are red flags for manipulation usually. Um, a marketing consultant for Reagan and Trump uh, political campaigns called this rejectionist voting. So this idea that the best way to win elections is by demonizing your opponent. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the politicians that do this are usually just distracting us from their policies, either their lack of policies or policies that aren't good for us. <laughs> They're good for the corporate state. Um, so usually people running attack ads don't have actual solutions or policies to fix any of the problems they're complaining about in the attack ads. They're mm -hmm. just using it to smear the opponents. And so people presenting solutions don't have to appeal to negative emotions. You know, they usually appeal to positive emotions. Um, you know, the last election is a great example. Think of how Trump, all the Trump-backed candidates focused on anger and outrage over election fraud or Biden causing inflation or the immigration crisis, whatever. None of those ads were proposing solutions. Um, you know, they're just trying to cash in on the problem. Whereas people running on solutions usually inspire you to act based on positive emotions, forgiving student loan debt, immigration reform, or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you know, think of Elizabeth Warren. Like, you know, every time she mm -hmm. speaks, what's out of her mouth? It's, it's very academic and aspirational. These are solutions. This is what we need to do. Bernie Sanders is the same way. You know, it's data and it's what we need to do. You know, we need this, we need this, we need this. It's all very goal um, driven and platform or policy driven. Um, they aren't using just hateful rhetoric to try to get elected. They're getting elected so that they can solve problems. 
-hmm. And so I think that's the key. They have a very academic approach to solving those problems. So the best way to fight, excuse me. So the best way to fight emotional appeals is through emotional intelligence. Um, Research shows that when we become aware of our emotions, particularly our emotional reactions, we can tame them. So the mere act of labeling how we feel in the heat of the moment um, can dampen the impact um, and allow us to think more clearly. Because otherwise, the more emotional we are, then the less likely we are to engage in critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why emotions are so often manipulated by people in power Mm -hmm. and why partisan networks are so dangerous. Um, You know, if we, I like to think of this example too, if we have negative emotions towards someone or some group of people who we don't know personally, or we can't qualify why we have these negative feelings, um, like say Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton, you know, those are, I feel like good examples. a lot of people just have this dislike for them and they can't really tell you why. Um, so if we don't know why we have those feelings in the first place, then usually it's because someone's been selling us those feelings mm-hmm. in order to manipulate us. And so the Clintons are a really good example because there's been such a massive smear campaign against them for the last 30 years that their names are so tainted, um, especially in like middle America. Um, and not that I'm, you know, apologetic for the Clintons or even supporters of the Clintons. It's just that they're such a good example because people either like them or hate them. And the hate is not just like, meh, it's like, you know, they just loathe them. Um, It's like a program discussed, especially towards Hillary. Um, But if you press them on why, it's very rare they can give you a reason. It's Mm -hmm. purely emotional, which means it was probably manufactured. Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to say... Um, you know, if you ask people why they hate Trump or Sarah Palin or something, they can give you legitimate reasons. <laughs> they can list a litany of offenses. They can all be verified. Um, but for people that often hate Obama or Hillary, they usually cannot give you a similar list. Or if they do, they're not based on things that are factual. They're more conspiracy or more, more like branding. Um, and they kind of are, you know, it's like negative branding because they've been branded by their political opponents. Um, and so, um, you know, when you're sold, um, you know, these lies by partisan media, um, it's very easy to manipulate, you know, the audience into disliking people. And it's usually always for power. Um, so again, when it comes to politicians, look for people who are standing for something, who are proposing solutions to make the world a better place, not trying to arouse fear, hate anger, disgust, um, those are, you know, Hitler's propaganda techniques. Um, and we see it all the time. You know? Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that it just made me see it in the new light is that this, like what you're talking about in here is not necessarily new ideas. Like it's stuff that has been happening for the decades for, for, for literally like oh, probably centuries. Yeah, a very long time. Um, and, you know, the more I read about like Nazi Germany and the Weimar Republic and uh, Hitler, it's just amazing the parallels, like how so much is still so relevant today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, and often like, you know, I think of this and a lot, this part isn't in the book, but this is something I write about and think about yeah. a lot is how like we tend to think of history as like, um, you know, stuff that's already happened. <laughs> like, or we try to think of all the big, you know, we think of all the biggest struggles of our time as something in the past, like, um, but that's never 
you know, that's not really the case. It's ongoing, you know, like there's, everything's a struggle mm-hmm. for power. Um, and at any point in history, you know, you usually have forces that are trying to make the world a better place. And then you have forces of antagonism who are trying to either keep these problems from getting solved because it helps someone's bottom line or profit margin, or it threatens someone's power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, instead of looking at every current event or um, debate as something wholly unique, like we should always be interpreting our world through that uh, filter of the forces of antagonism, um, because they're always there. And that helps you see more clearly who's in the right and who's not. Um, so whether it's, you know, the Civil War, you know, um, or getting, uh, you know, suffrage or getting the Civil Rights Act passed or marriage equality or trans rights or, I mean, you know, uh, raising the minimum wage, whatever the issue is, those are usually the two forces. And they don't always break down according to political parties, um, but they're usually the two forces and only one of those forces are trying to make life more democratic and equal for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Whoever is resisting the change or fighting the change is usually going to fall back on propaganda Mm -hmm. because they don't have, you know, right on their side. (laughs) So propaganda is, you know, a weapon of might. Yeah. Fight right. Yeah. And and we've talked a lot about the political nature of it. And you even, I think, alluded to it a little bit in there is that sometimes this isn't necessarily about parties, but sometimes, and you write about this in the book, you talk about big business as well, how businesses can be behind that. Can you talk about that aspect of it? Sure. Um, Let's see. I actually had a lot of examples of this. Uh, Yeah. Let me try to find it where it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there have been God, corporations have, you know, uh, just excelled at at selling us lies and misinformation and trying to cloud the debate for years. Um, industry has a long history of seeding propaganda to the public in order to protect their profits. You know, cigarette companies knew as far back as 1912 that cigarettes caused cancer, but they didn't publicly admit it until the 1990s. Um, it took decades. Uh, you know, the lead industry, the same thing. Knew about lead poisoning as far back as 1922, but Congress couldn't ban lead paint until 1978. You know, the asbestos industry knew it was dangerous. A new asbestos was dangerous as far back as 1898, but it wasn't regulated until the 1970s. And it was oil and gas scientists who first discovered they were causing global warming in 1977. And but what did the industry do when the scientists alerted, um, you know, uh, the oil and gas companies, they disbanded the panel of scientists and replaced them with a lobbying group. So, you know, uh, yeah, there's just such a long history. And that's, you know, everything from coal miners getting black lung to cotton mill workers getting brown lung disease, Roundup causing cancer, PG&E poisoning groundwater. I mean, the list is really endless. Thousands, if not millions upon millions of lives lost, you know, over the centuries because of you know, profits being protected. Um, And in most cases, there was never a debate. You know, there was always just science and resistance. But when corporate resistance is that strong, it creates the illusion of a debate. Um, And so doubt is sown and, uh, you know, they question the the science and make it sound like it's not settled. And, um, but usually a lot of the science seems to agree. And the only time 
it looks like there's not agreement is when it enters the public sphere and a corporation's profits are threatened. Um, and so, you know, that just replays over and over and over again. Um, climate change is probably the biggest at the moment that, um, you know, there was never a disagreement. Like, um, it's just the propaganda campaigns from the oil and gas industry and the Koch brothers have been so, so strong. Um, you know, the billions of dollars spent trying to fight it um, in the name of protecting someone's profits. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, and again, you write about this in the book, you talk about the illusion of debate. What does that look like? Like, what do you look for that that communicates to you like, okay, someone is trying to undermine mm -hmm. this argument or undermine or trying to create a false debate where there isn't one? Yeah, so... Like to me, it's, I can usually tell it's so easy because I read so much. I read yeah. so much nonfiction um, that for the longest time, uh, like if, you know, let's say if you're like an academic or you're scholarly or you're a scientist, um, like you don't even know there's a debate, like that there's another side until mm -hmm. politicians or corporations um, start spreading the misinformation and that's gotten easier and easier to do with, you know, websites and online presences. Um, but one of the things is, God, there's just, there's so many ways. Um, so one is smearing the messenger, you know, like, uh, you know, Al Gore trying to educate the public on climate science um, should not be political. <laughs> this should just be you know, a smart person who understands science trying to educate us. But mm -hmm. what do you do? You smear Al Gore or you try to undermine his credibility or show he's a hypocrite by using a private jet um, or talk about um, how, you know, oh, well, he makes money off of whatever, you know, climate initiatives or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, but only because no one else is doing it. Like, how else, mm -hmm. what else are you supposed to do? Sit back and hope the oil and gas companies try to, you know, produce uh, renewable energy? Like, you know, you have to do something. Like, so the people um, making an effort or trying to invoke change are just so easily taken down by the forces Um you know, and so like, even if Al Gore makes, I can't imagine he makes much money um, compared to Exxon Mobil or something like, you know, there's just no comparison, mm -hmm. like whatever Al Gore is making, I don't even know what he's making. I mean, you know, what is he making? Um, uh, yeah, I don't even know what he's invested in, but whatever yeah. it is, is, you know, minuscule compared to the oil and gas lobby. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, something like that, um, muddying the waters, um, trying to make make it sound like there's not um a consensus which they do a lot um i mean usually you know my shortcut is whatever is coming from industry be skeptical mm -hmm. if it's coming from people who are not paid by that industry you can probably believe them yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know at, at the simplest of terms um so again propaganda comes from the powerful why does it come? Because they're trying to protect money or profits. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I am skeptical of anything that comes from a corporation, period. Yeah. Um, because they have an agenda. Like, you know, 
whatever it is, you know, um, trust scientists and trust academics who devote their life to studying stuff and aren't on anybody's payroll. And that's where it can get tricky is if they buy out a scientist or an academic, which happens, yeah. um, you know, so. Yeah. That even makes me think of like another great question that you ask in the book, which is going to become one that I'm going to use a, a lot. It's who benefits by me believing this, you know, whether it be about climate change or immigration or whatever the policy is in that. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, totally valid. Um, because, you know, there's a meme going around social media right now that really crystallizes that point. And it says something like to understand any problem in society, look at who benefits and not who suffers from it. Mm. Um, and so again, cannot stress that enough. Um, and that's where most of the BS comes from. Those whose money and power are threatened either by science or social change or attempt to make people more equal, uh, which is why we're manipulated to believe in stuff like voter fraud or critical race, fear, critical race theory, or why politicians red bait, which still happens, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you're, what state you're in, but I'm in California. And so um, there was one politician this last election cycle who had all of these, you know, McCarthyism type ads, like trying to smear her opponent as being tied to communist China. And, and she won, you know, stoking mm -hmm. communist fears, which is as old. I mean, it was a century old propaganda yeah. technique. Um, and it's just so like frustrating, so annoying. Um, again, those ads that were smearing the opponent for being a communist, which he wasn't. Um, usually people that are smeared a communist, and I talk about this in the book, are usually just trying to protect the poor and the weak, either universal by universal health care, raising the standard of living, giving them minimum wage, some type of worker protections. Um, and any time a government effort to solve one of those problems for the poor um, is tried, you have the right wing yelling communism or socialism. Um, because that's the only way they could fight a change that's for the benefit of the poor people and not corporations. So, you know, why would they call universal health care socialist or communist? Because the health insurance companies are donating a lot of money to their campaigns for them to call it that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if we have uh, a universal health care system, then that means, um, you know, the healthcare industry for profit would not exist as we know it. Mm -hmm. And, um, so therefore it's to their benefit to convince us to think that that's, you know, dangerous step to socialism or whatever, which is just absurd because we're the only major nation that doesn't have universal health care. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason we don't is because when they first tried to do it in like the 50s or something, the American Medical Association was the, the main driver of fear mongering um, because they thought their doctors could make more money. Um, if it was private, you know, capitalist. Mm -hmm. And then the reins really came off in the Reagan years. Um, I think there used to be, if I'm remembering correctly, a lot of numbers in my head, but if there, uh, there used to be, I think, a cap or something where health insurance companies, like they can only make a certain percentage of a profit over cost. And then like the Reagan administration got rid of that. And so all of our healthcare costs have skyrocketed since like 1980. Um, because corporate profits, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. how do you make money off of people sick and dying? You demand cover, you yeah. uh, deny coverage or demand more expensive premiums or what have you. Um, so yeah.
So I want to ask you about uh, a few different examples of propaganda and go through that and kind of what they can look like. You know, one of them is you talk about this idea of framing. Can you kind of unpack what that looks like and maybe even give an example of what that can be? Sure. So framing is so subtle. Um, So it's a way to control the conversation and limit the parameters of the debate. So like when you defend hate speech as free speech Mm -hmm. um, or calling the estate tax, which only affects the top 0.1% of the population, a death tax. Um, You know, it's, it's the words you use to have a conversation um, that you know, point you in a direction that often forces you to have a certain type of conversation um, that maybe doesn't benefit um, your side or the other person's side, rather. So, you know, like um, claiming that the Civil War was fought um, not over slavery, but states' rights. So that's a framing trick. Mm -hmm. Um, And the whole states' rights thing wasn't a thing before the Civil War. That was one of those campaigns that came after um, you know, because, you know, the South, after losing, had to deal with the humiliation. Um, and so if they didn't want to be seen as the, you know, people who tried to enslave um, Black people, it was easier to see themselves as um, the victims. So basically, it was the big government overreach you know, the national government was trying to come in and infringe on each state's liberty. So instead of looking at it as the slave's liberty was mm-hmm. being um, restricted by the South, once they were freed, it was easier to think of themselves as victims of, you know, their own liberty being infringed on by the government. And so, um, so it was a retroactive way to justify secession and make themselves not look like the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, you know, anti-government sentiment, that big government infringing on states' rights, you know, still with us today. Um, that kind of still lingers in a lot of ways. Um, and it's usually what people are, again, fear tactic. <laughs> big government is even a framing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it big government? Um, usually someone's framing it that way because they don't want um, the government to do whatever a solution is that it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, raising the minimum wage. Oh, I don't want big government telling me how much to pay my workers um, or whatever it is. And so, you know, big government is one of those uh, framing techniques we should all be like on red alert about because mm-hmm. it usually means somebody's trying to steer the conversation in a certain way. Yeah. Can you tease out, you you know, you briefly mentioned free speech and hate speech, which again, just from my perspective, when if you live in a country that, that values free speech, it's like, I don't have to agree with that person. It's just, I don't know. It's just a tension that I think about from time to time. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, free speech, you know, like the, the people that are most um, frequently spouting hate speech Mm -hmm. use the free speech as a justification for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know um and there are a lot of words that have a lot of framing techniques that have been used that are very closely related to this Mm -hmm. so like politically correct or woke 
or cancel culture. Those are all words that are doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So basically, as you know, as we try to become better human beings and make society more equal and have more respect for other people, see their point of views, then you know we um, try not to use the N word, or we, yeah. you know, try to make gays feel more welcoming, or we, you know, respect a woman um, or give her the same yeah. um, respect as a male. And so, you know, these are all positive things. So how do you fight those things? Like, mm -hmm. again, if you're the white male who, um, you know, doesn't want women to have the same rights as you, or if you're straight people who don't want gays to have the same rights as you, or if you're white people who don't want blacks to be treated as equals, how do you fight these things? Um, and so you have to smear the attempts at reform. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, the whole critical race theory fear is because America was almost starting to reckon with its racist past. And, you know, racism is just follows, follows us in this country in every part of society, whether we realize it or not. And so, you know, seeing George Floyd get murdered, um, seeing the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests, there was a real um, moment of self-reflection. And the right, you know, again, yeah, and it doesn't have to be white supremacists, but let's just say, you know, the, the white supremacists of the world, the people who still want to keep blacks below them, um, basically had to make you afraid of, you know, critical race theory or made, you know, or spun blue lives matter, or, you know, these are all responses to something. And so, which is which, you know, which is the the noble move and then which is the response to try to maintain power. And so the fear mongering with critical race theory kind of came out of that. And it's the same with like woke or cancel culture, um, you know, which can mean different things depending, but the yeah. way the, the right's using it, you know, they're saying they're being, cancel culture is their code word for their being silenced and their free speech is being silenced when that's not what it is, the, you know, the, the examples they use, like Dr. Seuss, for instance, um, nobody's trying to silence Dr. Seuss. Like it's the Dr. Seuss estate recognizing that maybe some of his old things are a little racist and a little offensive and they don't want to be that person. They don't want to yeah. be that. So they're not going to produce those books anymore. That doesn't mean you, you still can't get the books. I mean, they've been on the shelves for 50 years. Um, so no one is canceling Dr. Seuss. They are responding to um, social movements and they are realigning their values out of respect for underprivileged classes. Mm -hmm. And so that threatens the old white power structure who has been profiting off of, you know, marginalizing these types of people. And so um, so all of those slogans, like, you know, these are all slogans um, that are trying to frame something in a, something positive in a negative way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the power of framing. Um, how do you, yeah. go ahead. No, no, that's, that's it. I'm good. I was going to say, how do you, how do you deal with someone who is constantly trying to reframe the situation? I mean, it's exhausting, but um, yeah, I, 
I I don't know because they they're so good at it. I mean, Frank Luntz made a career of it. I mean, he's kind of had a come to Jesus moment and now he's but you know, he framed global warming as climate change um because it was less threatening sounding. So it was easier to make the public more inert with the words climate change than global warming because warming is saying it's getting hotter whereas climate change sounds more natural um and so you know we're we're surrounded by these words constantly and so it's you know thinking critically and questioning um and again being aware of the negative emotions these things often have um uh, and another, we were, and one thing I didn't mention in speaking yeah. a few minutes ago, politically correct is another one that, again, it's a label that originated as a response to uh, feminist teachers getting tenure, gay rights groups appearing on college campuses, and again, trying to treat Black people with respect and not calling them the N-word. So these attempts at social justice on the college level was met by conservative activists as the politically correct movement. Um, and so politically correct mean I can no longer call you an N-word. Like, um, so it sounds, again, you're the, the real victims, <laughs> the feminists, the gays, and Black people um, who are trying to, um, you know, make a more equal campus um, are now being viewed as the bad guys and it's the right wing who are the victims because they can't say the N-word or they have to deal with gay groups or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's this level of victimization, but um, trying to make the bad guys look like the good guys. Mm-hmm. One other uh, type of propaganda that I want to ask you about is the straw man argument. Can you talk about that and what it is and maybe give an example or two? Sure. So a straw man fallacy is an argument that deliberately misrepresents an idea so that it's easier to attack. Like, you know, a scarecrow, a straw man, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, when you look closer, it's not a real man. There's nothing. there. Yeah. So the straw man oversimplifies or distorts or exaggerates. Um, yeah. To me, the, one of the most famous examples is dismissing Obamacare as having death panels, which Sarah Palin completely created out of thin air. There was no death panels in there. There was not, I mean, you know, again, who's solving the problem and who's standing in the way? <laughs> Obamacare, you know, was an attempt at universal health care. Um, and so how do you fight giving poor people health care? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's nothing in that that is bad. Um, and so you have to make up stuff. And so you know, oh, well, government's going to be deciding who lives and who dies. Like, okay, no, you're totally misconstruing this argument, but you're making it very easy to attack. Um, and so nobody wants the government to choose who lives and who's not. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, uh, you know, or attempts at uh, gun control, whenever people say they want to abolish the Second Amendment, it's like, no, we just want to take away, you know, AR-15s or whatever. Um so it's often, again, a response to someone trying to improve things or make the world a better place in some way, and the opponents attacking it in a way that makes it look like it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it happens like all the time. Yeah, there are just so many examples. Um, it's yeah, it's often um, like Trump did it all the time. You know, I feel like everything uh, dismissed as this and it's like, OK, that's not the argument. Um, and actually, you notice it a lot when politicians are put on the spot in interviews. Um, like if you ask them about something and then they kind of like dodge the question by, you know, saying something else, um, uh, like, or, you know, the blue lives matter or all lives matter is a good example. Like, um, like, oh, do you not think black lives matter? I think all lives matter. Okay. That's not what this is about, but like, um, everybody thinks all lives matter. Like, uh, anyway, so yeah, um, there's so many in the book. Yeah. I give a ton of examples of straw men. It's the challenge was limiting, which was yeah. the one because there's so many. Yeah. I, I know that there's a ton of other types of propaganda that we could get into. I want to shift a little bit. And what I want to ask you about is I'd love to know from your perspective, like, what is some of the propaganda that you're seeing today that you wish that more people would like pay attention to or think about because maybe we don't know the effect that it's having on us? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I got to cover, I feel like the whole book is nothing but these, but, um, yeah. uh, but, you know, client, climate denial is obviously a big one mm -hmm. um, because the stakes are so high. Um, but I feel like the political lies amplified by partisan media, if or if not entirely manufactured by partisan media, are just as dangerous. Um, you know, it's it's these political lies that speak the hate into existence to me. Um, and a great example is what happened to Paul Pelosi just a month ago. You know, the um, the guy who attacked him did not suddenly wake up one day with this idea. You know, he was fed such a steady diet of hate speech and fear mongering and demonization um, that he thought his actions seemed like a reasonable next step, you know, or look at what happened with January 6th. Um, you know, it's these political lies um, and misdirections that um, that really threaten, you know, the state of democracy. Um, and I think any of that type of propaganda is super dangerous. Um, you know, like voter fraud is one of these um you know, these things that keeps getting touted every time someone is a sore loser, you know, um, but there is no voter fraud in this country. Like, um, so the legislatures and politicians who keep trying to restrict access to the vote know there's no voter fraud. And that's the thing with a lot of these lies, the people spewing them know their lies. Um, and they know that their followers are gullible enough to believe them, um, which makes it very hard for them to stop believing that because then if you <clears throat> stop believing these lies then that means you're admitting you've been had and you know like that's not an easy thing to do um and so yeah so you know as the country becomes more and more diverse and less likely to support some of these candidates as we just saw um you know they either have to find a way to appeal to the common guy with their policies or they just have to rig the system to retain their power and time and time again, we're seeing them rely on propaganda and conspiracy theories as a way to retain that power. Um, you know, that's what we're witnessing with the Republican Party, really, and it's fealty to Trump. Um, note that they did not abandon him for abuses of power or tax evasion, obstruction of justice, extortion, perjury, bribery, wire fraud. Like, 
Sexual assault, inciting an insurrection. No, they only abandoned him once he committed their gravest sin, failing to secure political power in the Senate. Hmm. Um, so that says so much about where they're coming from. Um, and so the political lies, um, you know, just being aware of whatever the message is coming from some of these politicians, if they're making you hate someone or if they're appealing to your negative emotions, then, you know, chances are that's a good sign. They're just trying to manipulate you. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we should focus on what people stand for, what their policies are. And are those policies things that are going to help the vast majority of people or only corporations or the wealthy or, um, or some small segment? Um, and so again, is it beneficial or is it a punitive? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that quite answers your question. No, that, nope. That's good. You know, another thing that you talk about, uh, all throughout the book is becoming more media literate, especially as many of these, <laughs> we're just being bombarded by these messages, whether it be through TV or through ads or through any any form of social media. I'd love to just ask you, what are some of the the skills that you've developed that have helped you become more media literate? And you've already alluded to some of them and through some of the questions that you asked, but you can, can you kind of tease that out a little bit more? Sure. I mean, yeah, this is kind of what the book, how the book starts off. Um, you know, we tend to view each type of mass communication um, namely public relations, advertising, publicity, branding, journalism, we tend to view them pretty narrowly. Um, like, you know, we think of marketing or advertising um, as, you know, a sign for fast food or a new movie coming out or whatever, but it's also irresponsible for us taking a coffee break or celebrating Valentine's Day or believing incorrectly that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. You know, these were all ideas that didn't exist until successful marketing campaigns came along. <clears throat> so it's important that we look at each type of mass communication more broadly and be able to distinguish between them. Um, so, you know, the types of mass comm usually, especially, you know, if you go to school for mass comm, it's public relations, advertising, publicity, branding, journalism. Out of those, only journalism is really concerned with getting to the truth you know, the others are trying to sell us something. Um, so one of the goals of the book is to get readers to see each more broadly, like publicity, for instance. You know, we think of publicity um, or a publicity stunt as that famous shot of Marilyn Monroe standing on a subway grate with air blowing up her dress. You know, that is a publicity. But publicity is also the Hollywood sign and the Tour de France and hosting Saturday Night Live and all Tea Party protests. Um, it's just that, you know, some of these other ones aren't as obvious. And so training us to see the less obvious versions of PR and branding and marketing, um, you know, like branding is another one that can be pretty insidious. Um, I mean, we talked a lot, of, a lot of those, um, the framing techniques, mm -hmm. slogans, you know, um, or ways that branding sneaks into our lives without us realizing it. So again, when we think of branding, we can identify Wheaties as being the breakfast of champions. Like, you know, it's easy branding. Yeah. But branding is also Samuel Adams calling the Boston riot that killed five people, the Boston massacre to help spark the American revolution. Um, you know, it's politicians labeling themselves tough on crime or family values. Again, slogans they rarely live up to. 
Um, and so in the words of Edward R. Morrow, uh, Morrow, slogans are not solutions, they are sales tools. So slogans are trying to sell us something even when applied to politicians. So arming ourselves with the knowledge or you know, with the skills to be able to identify branding, PR, publicity um, goes a long way in helping realize which of our media messages are news and which are just noise. Mm-hmm. And most of them are just noise. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got one other question I want to ask you. But before that, I always love just asking, and I and I know this is a big question, but is there anything just top of mind that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we cover? You know, the idea that there's widespread voter fraud, which is so reinforced these days, but it's simply not true and has never been true in this country. So um, just to give you a few statistics, in the 2016 election, the rate of voter fraud was 0.000003%. So voters have a greater chance of seeing a UFO or being struck and killed by lightning um, than voter fraud. And the odds of voter fraud influencing elections are 0.000017%. So the terms voter fraud and election fraud have always been tied to efforts to keep people of color from voting. And so it's a dog whistle and it's a coded language. Um, So if you look at when and where voter ID laws are introduced or polling places are closed or mail-in ballots are restricted, it is always places where minorities had a strong turnout in the previous election. It is that simple. Um, And so that's important to stress for... Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, oh, credible sources. That was another thing we had talked about. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, when it comes to evaluating credible sources for information, I suggest, you know, traditional and legacy media that have respectable track records, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, NPR. Uh, I'm a big fan of public radio, um, public access, because they're not beholden to shareholders or corporate interests. Um and that's not to say that you know some of these news outlets don't occasionally get something wrong or make mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. We're all human. But mistakes and misinformation are not their business model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, journalism and delivering the news and holding the powerful accountable is. And that's what makes something a credible news source. Are they there to score political points or smear people or are they dare, there to deliver information? Mm-hmm. So it's always a red flag when a media outlet is trying to blame the poor poor or the helpless or the defenseless or minorities, but they're absolving the powerful. So, you know, for instance, blaming the poor for their poverty instead of explaining or investigating into why our economic system has created so many poor people in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, or blaming debt-saddled college grads for not being able to afford a home instead of the conditions that have made real estate unaffordable for future generations. Um, And so, you know, and seeking information from people who have dedicated their lives to that field of study, whether it's scientists or academics or journalists who've been recognized for their work in the form of Pulitzer's, Nobel Prizes, or other awards. Um, You know, it says a lot that in 2021, PBS was nominated for 12 Peabody's and 52 Emmys for news. CBS was nominated for two Peabody's, two Peabody's, and 30 Emmys, and CNN was nominated for 44 Emmys. Meanwhile, Fox News was nominated for zero Peabody's and zero Emmys. That tells you all you need to know about cable news. 
So another thing I wanted to ask you about is this idea of the truth will win out on its own. And I would just love to hear your take on that because I think that's what I think that's what a lot of us believe that if we get the the right information out here, the truthful information out there, then at some point it's going to bubble to the surface. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit and why that might not be the case? Sure. I mean, that's the hope and that's the argument for a marketplace of ideas, you know, that truth will compete with falsehoods and truth will rise to the surface. And that's not always the case, especially today, um, mostly because of the Internet. Um, And because of the Internet, we no longer have information gatekeepers, um, which in a way this is good because now everybody has a voice and they could all share their ideas or recipes or whatever they want on their websites and blogs. But what this also means is that bad actors have more opportunities to overwhelm the information system with lies and misinformation that usually benefits their backers in some way. You know, data scientists call this censorship through noise. If you flood the media with so much misinformation, it overwhelms legitimate sources of news and you can't tell what's true. Um, That's one of Steve Bannon's, you know, philosophies. Um, If you flood the zone, you know, he has a quote like, Um, The way to deal with journalists is just to flood the zone with shit, um, is his quote. Um, Because, again, there's so much shit that you waste all of your time trying to debunk the shit when real news is happening. um, And they're distracting you from that or keeping you from that. And it's just so much more prevalent than we think it is. So during 2016, the 2016 election, the 20 most read fake stories um, on Facebook were viewed more times than the 20 most real stories. Mm. And Facebook estimated that Russian propaganda reached 126 million Americans. Um, And they had to shut down like 5.8 million fake accounts in the November of 2016 alone. 2018, Facebook had to eliminate another billion fraudulent accounts. And Facebook Facebook users 65 and older share nearly seven times as many fake news articles as 18 to 29 year olds. So the danger with so many of these lies everywhere we look online is that we can't agree on what our problems are. Like, you know, if we can't agree on what the problems are, then we sure can't agree on how to solve them. And this creates conditions that allow demagogues and authoritarians to thrive. Um, You know, there's a quote by Timothy Snyder I have in the book, um, who's a historian, that post-truth is pre-fascism. To abandon facts is to abandon freedom. And that's why it's so important to fight for truth and to champion truth, because as democracies take a tumble around the globe, um, it's due in large part to social media. And a lot of this kind of goes back to 2009 when Facebook introduced an algorithm that use the person's previous likes to determine the posts people see. And then YouTube picked up on it. And the posts that got the most engagement time and time again were those that elicited anger, hate, and resentment. Um, The more of an emotional reaction you have, the more likely you are to share it, which is more hits and more views and more ad dollars. Um, So as these posts began to gain more and more traction and people were spiraling down these echo chambers of hate and resentment, Um, people became more divided, demagogues began to rise, and democracies began to decline. And our democracy was downgraded in 2016 to a flawed democracy. And I believe it's been downgraded again since then to, um, I forget what it's called. Um, I have it in the book. Um, 
I don't know what it is, but anyway, so yeah, democracy needs a powerful press and we need to be able to tell the difference between truth and what sounds true. Yeah, I remember seeing that graphic that you have in the book about our democracy. And that was just, it was stunning to me because again, that's not something that you hear about very much. No, there's a fantastic book that I highly recommend. I just found the stat um, called How Civil Wars Start by Barbara F. Walter. Mm-hmm. And it talks about a lot of this. Um, she, you know, kind of tracks the rise of um, demagogues and authoritarians in the last 10 or 15 years and just how much social media has influenced them because, mm-hmm. you know, it's what's allowed that censorship through noise um, uh, that, you know, these authoritarian regimes and these governments can just overwhelm protesters and and civil rights advocates. Um, so, yeah, um, the, the U.S. is no longer the world's oldest continuous democracy. We were downgraded in 2021 to an anocracy, a form of government somewhere between a democracy and an autocratic state. Hmm. Um, and so Switzerland is now the world's oldest continuous democracy. Yeah. Um, and I think you can attribute this 100% to the lies and misinformation of partisan media, the internet, um, and the politicians who enable it. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to ask you about, and you you touched on in the beginning of our conversation, you talk about it throughout, is just the skill of critical thinking, which media literacy goes into that as well. I'd just love to hear from you if if someone is looking to become a more critical thinker, what might be one or two things that you would recommend to help them become more or better at critical thinking? Yeah, I, you know, we kind of uh, led in this earlier. One of the main things we do is ask, ask ourselves for any belief we have, who benefits by me believing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, that's just one of the dead giveaways. You know, if we think the poor are to blame for their poverty, um, who benefits by that belief? Only the uber, uber wealthy who have convinced us of that so they don't have to pay higher taxes in order to fund social safety nets. Um, you know, um, trying to, you know, the opposite of critical thinking is black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. And so black and white thinking is, you know, really not even thinking, it's just believing. Our brain goes straight there, like with stereotypes. Um, um, and so, bad actors rely on this black and white thinking when they're trying to sell us myths or misinformation. And so, and the more those falsehoods are repeated, um, you know, they become beliefs. Um, and those beliefs go unquestioned, unchallenged, and ultimately just accepted as a truism. Um, and that could be anything as benign as believing that, you know, cracking a mirror leads to bad luck, you know, like that's a black and white belief. Like really, does it always like, you know, it's, um, or people, prefer Pepsi over Coke, like those old taste tests. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it could be something more insidious, like Jews control the world or vaccines cause autism or the 2020 election was stolen. Um, You know, these are simple black and white statements that are not only not accurate, um, but are kind of trying to sell something um, that closes off debate. So if you say the 2020 election was stolen, like that's a conclusion <laughs> mm-hmm. that you're making based on nothing. 
Um, you know, or if you're saying vac vaccines cause autism, like again, that's a salute, that's not a solution, that's a conclusion that's not accurate. Um, um, and so, you know, we questioning these beliefs, questioning simple statements that try to reduce a complex problem into this, you know, into only one aspect of that problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the best, yeah, the best ways we can become critical thinkers. Yeah. Well, Chris, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get the book, How to Win the War on Truth. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book? Uh, Yeah, Um, I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. My handle is Samuel C. Spitali on all three. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. Feel free to reach out and, yeah, let me know what you think of the book. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much for doing the work and for sharing it with us as well. Thank you for having me. This has been great. So coming out of that conversation, here's a couple of my big takeaways, and it's really more in the form of just questions. And some of the some of the questions are questions that Chris asked. And it's, you know, who is trying to make me afraid in this, in this situation, on this issue? Who is trying to make me afraid? Or who's trying to make me feel or have a very strong reaction to this? Whether that be anger or fear or hate or jealousy or whatever that might be. Who is trying to create a strong emotional reaction in me? Who gains a lot by me believing that this thing is true? Who is reaping the rewards from this thing being true or for this being the case or for me believing this? Who stands to lose if I decide to go down this path or if I decide to go down a different path? Either way, I think it's important that we ask hard questions about this about people who are who are wanting to lead us, whether that be businesses or nonprofits or in uh, politics as well. I think it's important for us to engage with these ideas and not just follow people blindly. It's important to engage with our minds in this. And so that's just a couple of things that I'm thinking about. If you enjoyed this episode, remember the best way that you could keep up with me and everything that's happening here on the Learner's Corner and uh, for just continuing to learn it, to be a lifelong learner, is through subscribing to my newsletter where I give you just all the different things that I'm learning from, from TV to movies to books to podcasts to videos and literally just anything to articles to anything that is making me think or capturing my imagination. So I think that's all that I have for today. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast and thank you thanks to chris for being on the podcast as well and thanks to sam massey for providing the music for the learner's corner as well my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing <laughs>